This audio production is presented by Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church in Ocala, Florida. For more resources, visit us online at gspcocala.com. This morning's sermon passage is from the letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. May his word give us life. Uh, Would you all please bow your heads and pray with me? Uh, Father, as we turn to your word, would you open up our hearts and minds to hear it, to receive it, and to be changed by it? Uh, Father, would these not just be old words uh, or dead words on a page? Uh, But as you promise and as you say is true, would these words bring life? Uh, God, would you uh, cut deep into our hearts, expose the ways in which we uh, treat you as a slave master and live as though we are slaves before you. Uh, God, empower us by your spirit to live as sons. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, We pick up in Galatians somewhat in the context of where we finished last week. Uh, And where we finished last week, uh, Paul was articulating that God's people once lived as though they were under a guardian, under the law. And now in Christ, we are no longer under the law, but under grace. And that means that we are now heirs, heirs of God according to his promise. What he is going to lay out here in these few verses in front of us uh, is perhaps one of the most significant truths in the history of the world. And at the same time, it's something that you and I can read and just kind of gloss over if we miss the beauty of what's going on Paul begins saying, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. The context of what he was speaking of again last week in chapter 3, saying that those under Old Testament law, under Jewish law, lived as though they were to receive the promise, but lived as only childlike heirs, meaning they had this guardian over them that was only keeping them until the time when they could attain to the promise that God had given to Abraham. 
And what he's going at is saying that that time is up, that law has been removed, but for those who lived under that law, they lived like an heir who was not yet of age, an heir who was not yet able to actually attain the inheritance, attain the promise. And he says something striking because he says that means you're no different than a slave, which makes sense. It makes sense no matter how you operate. For the child who is an heir, they have the same authority and they have the same freedom as a slave. Meaning everything may be theirs. Everything may actually legally be their possession, but they have no rule over it. They have no authority over it. What Paul is saying is that under Old Testament law, that promise was in front of you, but the access was not there. The law kept us under it. He says he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, one of the fun things that you can really do in looking at the doctrine of adoption is talk about the Greco-Roman world and how adoption worked and, and how Paul is using it as an illustration of our relationship to God. And one of the things you see here that actually stands out is that what Paul says here is actually different than Roman adoption. It, it is similar, but I point that out to say adoption is not this earthly concept that Paul uses to explain a heavenly reality. But no, actually adoption is a heavenly reality that we see lived out in images on earth. Right, oftentimes we, we get this idea when we talk about these illustrations that we see in Scripture that they are just images to help us understand something. And the reality is adoption God's adoption of rebellious children as his sons and daughters is not using an earthly illustration that is really a pretty picture and talking about something God has done, but instead it is first and foremost God's way that we get to image out, we get to put on display. This is not an analogy. This is a reality. Right, sometimes in relationships between men and women, they live as though they are married. I don't know if you ever did this in high school. Sometimes your buddy would start dating a girl and you would say, it's like they're married. They're not married, but they start living and treating one another like that. God's relationship to his children is not like adoption. It is the reality of God going and claiming you as his own, making you his child. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And what he does here is, is actually quite astounding. He points at these elementary principles. Mine was Mr. Jordan, and he had a paddle in his office that was scary. And that's not what he's talking about, right? Anybody have a scary elementary principal? Yeah, I was afraid of ours. I was at goody-two-shoes. I never, never actually saw any of that stuff. 
He says, you were enslaved to these elementary principles. And when he does this, he, he does something strange because he, he's talking in language of pagan idolatry, elementary principles. It, it's what you see when you turn to the horoscope, when you look at astrology. It's what you see when you look at basic idol worship. It is the way in which we try and understand the elementary, the way things work. And if we can understand how the world, if we can line up how the stars are going to fall out, if we can understand that if I do this, I'll get this outcome. And so if I need, if I need success in business, I go to the business idol and I lay my sacrifice at his feet. Sometimes that idol is a literal statue. Sometimes it's just a permit office. But we look for ways to manipulate and control our world by the elementary principles and our understanding of them. And Paul says, that's what pagans do. But at the same time, when he makes this sweeping statement, he says, when we were, we were like children, we were like heirs under the law following the elementary principles. So that he takes pagan idolatry and blends it with Old Testament law keeping. Not to say the Old Testament law was wrong but to say the way in which we, and you can put anybody you want to in that category, the way in which we use the Old Testament law is as it's an elementary principle. We enslave ourselves to it. We come up underneath it and try and use our obedience to it to manipulate the outcome we want from God. What he says is what that does for us is that makes us not the masters of our own universe, not those who are controlling things. And we haven't understood everything so that we can get what we want, but instead we have so only enslaved ourselves to it. We have set it up so that we have to manipulate everything to hold it right so that we can get this outcome we want. And in reality, we have only enslaved ourselves to it. Perhaps you know this feeling. Perhaps you know this experience of finding yourself enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, looking for ways in which you can measure up, can attain, can do the right things so that you can get that thing that is at the end that you most want. It, it is the same language of the older brother in Jesus's parable, right? When the father comes out and says, your younger brother's home, the older brother looks at him and says, you never even gave me a goat while I've been slaving for you. Right? He, the father looks at him and says, everything I have is yours. And you thought you had to slave to get a goat. How does your heart operate in that? How do you look at God and see him See him as a tyrant or a slave master or an elementary principal watching over you? How does your heart operate day in and day out so that if you oversleep a little bit and you get busy and, and you don't stop and, and say a prayer before you start your day, you think God's going to be mean to you? 
You think if you, if you don't do three quiet times in a row that somehow you've not measured up and that's why you didn't catch that red light or that's why that pain has come into your life. Or on the other end, you think, ah, I've kept a clean nose. I've done the things I'm supposed to. That's why God is, is giving me good things. How is it that you've allowed yourself to fall into this enslavery of elementary principle living that says, if I can only manipulate God enough, then, then I can get what I want. He says, that is the living of a slave. It's the living of a childlike heir who has not yet attained the promise. But the good news, right? The good news is that that is not where we must live anymore. If you find yourself today living as a slave to the world, trying to figure out how you can manipulate your life to get what you want from God, the good news of this passage is you can be free from that. You can wake up tomorrow and not have to fight and strive to manipulate your circumstances to get the thing you want. Instead, you can be set free as an heir of all things. Because in the fullness of time, God sent his son in the fullness of time, right? Think about what it means for Paul to say that. When he says it in Romans 5, he says, at the right time, which as a nebulous idea sounds really cool. It just, it happens. For us, it happened in the past. And so we get to live in that reality. Think if you're Paul. Think if you're Paul and you devoted your life to the Old Testament rigors of the law, so much so that you pursued Christians to death. And you say, just at the right time. To be able to see that God perfectly stewarded the moment. If you're Paul, what you're saying is, as I spewed out threats, and killed people, God held his hand back for just the right moment. You ever wonder why God times things the way he does? Paul is able to say that in God's goodness, at just the right time, he sent his son. In Romans 5, 7, he says, at, at the right time, when we were weak, right? The right time was not when you had uh, structured everything right. The right time was not because Roman roads existed. It, it wasn't because of where Palestine sat in the world. It was because we were weak at our weakest. God sent his son. Now, this is just a friendly reminder for you. We have to convince our hearts of this reality often God sent his son. Jesus did not have to persuade the father to love you. Jesus did not come because you needed a boost because God was really angry at you, but Jesus convinced him to be nice to you. God, the father, sent his son for you. 
He sent forth his son, born of a woman, meaning he was born a human. He was born to be one of us so that he could take our place, but not just take our place, but particularly to take our place born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. We talked about this in the past couple of weeks. As Galatians 3, 10 and 13 talk about our lives under the law mean that we are under a curse. Because anyone who strives to keep the law will not be able to keep it and will simply be cursed. So for Jesus to come and be born under the law was to take on our curse so that he could redeem us, so that he could get us back. Do you ever wonder why technically Jesus did come? Do you ever think about that? Some of us ask too many questions, right? Why did did Jesus really come? Why did he live? Why did he die? There's there's answers because he loves us. To pay a penalty. Substitutionary atonement. That's a good one, right? If you're a good Presbyterian, for the glory of God. But what does he say here? What is the pinnacle of displaying his glory? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. This is the ultimate. Now, this is the time when preachers get really frustrated because you want to be able to give a reality to somebody and you can't. You can only pray that the Holy Spirit opens your heart and opens your eyes to see the beauty and wonder of it. The reason Christ came was not just to show great love. It was not just to take your place. But the purpose in which Christ lived and died and came back to life was to make sinners who rejected and rebelled against God into his sons. Right? To go and to say, I choose you and want you to be mine. Not because of what you have done or will do, not because you're the cutest baby in the room, but because you are rebelling against me, I choose you as mine. In my house, we debated recently who the favorite child is. (laughs) And we all know, so I like much of a debate. But I asked my kids on the way to school, I said, to each one of them, who's the favorite? And we had a variety of answers from each child. I kind of looked at him and said, that's funny because only one of you guys we actually chose. Dead silence. (laughs) (laughs) Do you see the beauty of it? Do you see the beauty of God the Father adopting you as his own? Not, not saying, hey, I've got a room and you can stay out back and, you know, I got a little bit of work. If you'll help carry the load around here, you can live with us. Not saying, hey, we eat dinner at eight. If you want to join the table, you're welcome to. But going and making you his own, that you have all the rights and privileges. This is, this is like, of a son. 
right? This is the adoption thing. Sometimes, you know, some of us get a little bowed up on this. Why are you saying sons? Why not sons and daughters? My translation said sons and daughters, right? Why does he say sons? One, the analogy that he's keeping helps to, helps to show, right? Sons were the ones who had the right. Particularly, the firstborn son was the only one who really had the inheritance. He was the only one who had the right to inherit. So when Paul says, you're adopted as sons, he's not saying, because we don't like girls. What he's saying is, instead of, uh, instead of chauvinism, he's saying equality, that every person, no matter what, has the rights of sons, particularly of firstborn sons, which again, is not an analogy because there is a firstborn son. He says, you have the rights as an heir of Jesus. Not just like like you're a son, but when you are adopted, you are adopted in Christ. Meaning you are in Christ, meaning everything that is his is yours. So that when he adopts us as sons, he makes this beautiful, glorious statement inviting us to see that we now have all the rights as an heir. J.I. Packer says this. He says, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and the whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. J.I. Packer kind of knows what he's talking about. Verse 6. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. When I was in high school, uh, I found out that if you, uh, if you were struggling in your Christian life, perhaps what you needed was you needed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that would help you, uh, if you will, level up in your Christian walk. And you would go from level one to level two, and you would be a better Christian. And uh, and I was all in for that because I was a bad Christian and I wanted to be a better Christian. And my problem was the next summer I needed to level up again because it didn't work. And I kept trying to level up and, and, and keep trying to get the spirit because somehow he didn't want to stay. Because every time I said come, he would, he would show up for a little bit of power and then he would go. And I didn't know what was going on. And what this tells us is that the Holy Spirit is not this outside force that you, you become a Christian. And then if you're really good, the Holy Spirit will dwell on you. But in fact, all who are his, the Spirit makes his dwelling in you. He builds his house on your property and lives in you. And we talked about the Holy Spirit when we were in 1 Corinthians and, and all the, the, the fun things that were going around in Corinth and all the displays uh, of the gifts of the Spirit. And what, what Paul says here is all those things we talk about, the move of the Spirit, the gifts, of the, how you know the Spirit is alive in somebody. The number one way God tells us through his word that you know the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Son dwells in you is... It's not your tongues. 
It's not your words. It's not your gifts. It's not how you wake up in the morning. What is it? He says, our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. Right? The, the wonder of it is that to be a follower of Jesus, the way that you are assured of that and testified of that is not in your glory, but he uses the word cry. Now, it's hard to replicate that and stay Presbyterian because he, it's, it's not Abba, right? It sounds like I'm at a bad concert. It's, the word itself uh, is, uh, in Greek, it sounds like karatso, right? It is violent. David Strain says that a Christian who does not pray is like a baby who does not cry. What he's saying here is that our hearts are shouting out, Dad, Father, shouting not from the place of the mountaintop of, woohoo, I did it, but shouting out in great need. In Romans 8, when Paul uses this language about shouting out, Abba, Father, he immediately transitions into the fact that we suffer like the son did. The way that you know the Spirit of God is active and dwelling in you is not your success, but it is how your heart responds to the suffering that will happen in your life. Do you cry out? For some of us, our prayers sound like we're going to a bank teller or ordering at McDonald's. Oh, by the way, I forgot. Can you add this? He says, the way you'll know the Spirit dwells in you is that your heart cries, Abba, Father. Now, this is, Abba is a word that we, we talk about, we define, we try and bring in. Notice Paul, in writing to Greek-speaking people, takes an Aramaic word because the Aramaic word expresses it better than if he were to translate it for them. The idea, of course, is, is the idea of an intimate name of a father. It may be dad, it may be daddy, but it's not void of the reverence and reality of the father. I, I don't know about you, sometimes I hear some children say daddy, and just the, the, like you can feel the manipulation in which the, they said it. Daddy, that is not what he's talking about, okay? There is a way to use the word that is beautiful, and there's a way to use the word as though you are trying to get back to an elementary principle. And say, if I call him Abba, will I get what I want? You said I'm supposed to call you Father. So I say Father because I want to manipulate you into getting what I want. Instead of that free and joyful cry. Right, the, the quote on the front of the bulletin from Tim Keller. Only a child goes into the, the bedroom of a king and wakes him up at 3 o'clock in the morning and asks for a glass of water. Right? <laughs> Happens in our house all the time. I'm not a king, but man, kids come in and ask for stuff, right? He says, understanding not that you have to manipulate, but you have the privileges of going and calling out. That is how you know that you are a son.
So, verse 7. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He says, you're no longer a slave. You no longer have to go back. This is, this is why Paul started off at the beginning of Galatians just livid. Because they had gone from being sons back into slavery. They've gone back to slaving themselves, trying to find ways to manipulate God into getting what they wanted. He says, you are no longer enslaved. You are now an heir. You are a son. It is all yours. So the question would be, dear believer, how does your life show that you are a son and not a slave? How do you live that out differently? How do you live under the freedom of being an heir of all things? One of the things Ted Strawbridge was excellent at was he helped you to see that the majority of your Christian life was not lived in this hour and a half. But for many of you, it involves waking up early and going to work hard every day in an industry that you probably did not enter thinking God was there. And after being in it for a while, you may be certain that God is not there. And the reality is, is that when God comes to redeem all things, when the king makes you his son and makes you an heir to everything, your work is a place where that actually gets lived out. So that your adoption doesn't end at that door. But when you walk into your business, when you walk into your office, when you go to work tomorrow, you go as an adopted son of God. How does that change it? I think it means you get to do business more freely than anybody else you know. Because your identity and your success in your company are not what determine whether or not you survive this life. The way in which you are free to not be enslaved of trying to manipulate the business in which you're in to survive, but instead could entrust that your heavenly father holds you, your company, your job, everything in his hands and can sustain you even if you don't give in to the dog-eat-dog of your work and instead work in such a way as though all is yours and you are Christ. It works the same way if you're retired, right? If you're retired, it doesn't mean that you get to just look back and say, it is finished, I'm done, both positively and negatively. Right? Your time is not up. God has not stopped you from doing what he has called you to do. He's transitioned it to something else. But also, you don't get to look back at a career, at a life of work, and say, all right, now I'm valuable because of what I did. I attained retirement, therefore I am successful. But instead, you are free to not let the previous 50, 60, 70 years of your life define who you are as much as the reality that you are forgiven and adopted by God. Now that should free you to not feel like every conversation has to go back and prove that you're worth it. 
watch Saving Private Ryan with one of my kids this week. Great movie, terrible ending, right? Tell me I earned the right to be alive now. What you have done in your life is not how you determine if you are valuable. It is not how you determine if you were worth it. It's not how you determine if it was good because Christ has made you his own. And part of that means you can freely say, I was a failure. I tried so hard and never accomplished anything I thought I would. And the king of the universe calls me his own. I don't have to bluster. I don't have to hold it up. In your family, how will your house look different if every interaction you have with your spouse and with your children is not a chance to prove yourself or protect yourself, but instead a chance to take the grace that's been given to you and give it to them? Inviting them into the family of God. If you're a student in your school, if you are adopted by God, it means you are free from living in comparison to everybody else. Isn't that a freedom you'd like to have? At the end of every service, I take up words from number six, and I offer God's blessing to you. God gave us those words and he gave those words to Moses and he said, Moses, I want you to give Aaron these words and Aaron will speak these words over the people. And when he does, you can look it up. He will put my name on my people. That is the freedom of adoption. That is the joy of adoption that you come into Christ and become a son of God. And that overshadows everything so that as you walk out, you have his name on you. You are his. That is the promise of the gospel. Would you let me pray for you, please? Now, Heavenly Father, open our hearts to receive this. Teach us day in and day out to rest in the truth of being adopted by you. Uh, Father, for those of us who've never seen this, who've never believed this, would you grant faith today that we might believe and see that you are the one who has made us your own. In Christ's name, amen.